Well, I am excited to be wrapping up. Um, I don't know if I'm on at all, David. A few issues. To be wrapping up kind of our church series. And I say kind of because we're going to be in our last week, but uh, there's going to be a bonus week next week. So, spoiler alert, you guys got it. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. And we are going to be picking it up in chapter 6, starting in verse 9. That's going to be on page 811, I believe, if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles. And we are going to be taking a quick look on what is known as the Lord's Prayer. What is known as the Lord's Prayer. And the reason why we're going to be looking at that is because I intentionally chose the topic of prayer to be our last main characteristic as a church. As we've been walking through, what do we believe here at Carson Valley Bible Church? That when you come here on Sundays in particular, what are you going to experience? What are you going to see? What is going to be a declared and observable value for us as a church. And now let me just kind of quickly go through where, where we've been as a church in the series. So week one, we looked at what was the role of the Bible for us as a church, that it is our foundation, right? That this book contains everything in which we need to know about him and our ability and understanding of what it looks like to worship him, to worship God. So all of life of doctrine and, and even uh, how we respond to that the Bible is our authority, is our authority, is our authority in the church. Now, week two, we looked at what is the role of preaching then? If we believe that God has written a book, then we must preach the message of that book. And that is the gospel, right? To preach the good news of Jesus every single Sunday. Uh, week three, we looked at how God has given us two wonderful offices of leadership and a pastor, elder, and deacon. Right? Two offices which God has given the church in a leadership capacity to help lead and equip the church to be on mission. Week four, we looked at the beauty of a church family. The beauty of a church family and what can happen when a group of people is coming together and devoting themselves to one singular cause and saying, hey, I'm in. I'm going to devote myself to Bible doctrine, gospel doctrine, and also gospel culture. We looked at that in week four. Now, last week... Week five, I discussed the mission of the church, the mission to go make disciples who make disciples both here locally, primarily, and then by God's grace to the ends of the earth, to all nations. And so this week, what we're going to do to kind of wrap up this series in some ways is I want to take a moment and look at the role of prayer in the church, the role of prayer in the church. Because truthfully, without prayer, everything that we've already looked at I think it's obsolete unless we are a church that's committed to prayer. Because what does prayer do? What is prayer's intent? It is to point you to where the power for everything which we want to do as a church actually comes from. Actually comes from. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. I think, and I think this is honestly, this is probably true in most cases and not, and this saddens me, that you can get into a habit, whether it's at this church or another church, where you can believe that if, as long as you have all of the right elements, maybe a, a dynamic preacher, maybe a good musician, maybe the right programs, maybe enough resources, money in the bank, if you have all of those things in place, then you will see disciples be made or you'll see people come to faith. And ultimately, what you're saying is, if as long as we just master doing church really well, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. 
but it cannot be because that's relying upon us, isn't it? As long as we get everything right, then we'll be fine. But what prayer does is it reminds us and it grounds us in where does the power for all these things truly come from? It comes from the, whom, the God in whom we're praying to. So prayer is an incredible point of, 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 of foundation for us as a church. Because it comes from God. It's, our prayers are to God. Martin Luther, he said it this way. Let me show you guys this. There's a slide on this. Martin Luther said that the church has to be in the business of prayer. This is what he says. He says, as is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to make shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. You see, church, what he is saying is prayer is not this optional thing that when things are maybe not going the way that you intended them to go, then you pray. Or when you're desperate or you have no other ways of actually uh, having things go the direction which you want to go, then you pray. Now, Martin Luther says, no, no, no. You actually, your whole life is committed to prayer. It's actually the very essence of who you are as a Christian is one of prayer, a life of prayer. It's a recognition of God being God. And so, like any other church characteristic that we've looked at over the last six weeks, I think, hey, we should go to the Bible and see what does God actually say then about prayer? Does he explain it in the same way in which I'm saying it to us now? That our total dependency as a church must be revealed and observed in how we pray as a church. Now, there's many texts that we could look at. The Bible is full of prayers. It's full of the church praying. The New Testament itself, if you read through it, you'll see them constantly being directed and showing that their life was dependent on God to move. And they showed that through their prayer life. But I want to focus in on the Lord's Prayer this morning because I want to help us maybe teach us how to pray. Teach us what it looks like to pray. To pray. Because, and here's, here's maybe a little bit about me. My understanding of prayer for much of my life, for much of my life, came from a great, uh, and I, I use the word great um, loosely here, the great theologian Garth Brooks in his song Unanswered Prayers was basically my whole theology of what prayers were. Now, if, if you're familiar with that song, you realize that uh, the basis of it is Things that you pray for, sometimes God will not do those things because they're bad and he has something better for you. And that's a good thing. But that's not a totality of what prayer is. That song does not teach you actually what then what are you supposed to pray for. And that's where I think the Bible rightfully actually does teach us how to pray. And Jesus himself teaches us in what is known as the Lord's Prayer exactly what we can look at for the direction in our prayer life. But before I do that... I want to pray because the very thing in which I want to communicate and to show you guys this morning, I know and believe with all my heart that it can only come if God moves, if God moves. So let's go ahead and let's stop here and let me just pray for you guys. Will you just pray for me and then we'll look at, at the text. Well, Father, I want to just, I want to offer just all of my life to you again. I want to offer everything which we're about to look at again. And I know I know from your word that you are a good God and, and that you have desired for us as a people to, to know you and know you through your word, but also communicate and correspond with you through prayer. So we want to do that right now. 
And God, I pray that you would be with every single person, that you'd allow them to see prayer for what it is, to see the power that comes through prayer because of you. God, we pray for our kids. God, we pray for the teachers who are back there leading them and teaching them some of these very same elements of what it looks like to depend and rely on a God who is loving and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. So God, we just submit our lives to you this morning and may all of it bring glory to you and joy for us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so if you guys have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Let me go ahead and read this. It should be on the screen as well. Starting verse 9, it says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we are thankful that God has written uh, his word down, that we can understand this very prayer from Jesus because of the word of God. So in context, right, because we're just kind of jumping into this passage, in context, the Lord's Prayer is coming off the heels of Jesus teaching and doing this giant, basically, sermon series known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's been teaching all of the disciples and all the crowds that are coming and listening to him what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what all of Matthew 5 is about. And so he's coming off the heels of that. And this is, we should remember this, because we just walked through the Gospel of Mark, that usually, and typically, more times than not, when Jesus is teaching and preaching, either right after or right before he does any kind of ministry event, he has considerable amount of time in prayer. That He's praying like crazy. He's going off by himself. He's praying with the disciples. And so in the Gospel of Luke's account, basically the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus. Can you teach us how to pray? Can you teach us how to pray? Now, take note of this. Even though that these were uh, fishermen and were not you know, professional uh, Jewish personnel or were not rabbis, they had been around prayer. It's not like they had never heard somebody pray before. Right? These were Jewish men. The disciples were Jewish men who had heard Jesus pray before. So then why are they coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? Because there was something different about the way that Jesus prayed. There was something different about the way that he corresponded with God. Like he was talking to his father. Like he was talking to somebody that was able to accomplish everything in which Jesus wanted to see accomplished. You see, Jesus was, and maybe you guys have seen this. You've been around somebody who's been walking with, walking with God for a long time. And they seem to pray with a different type of of humility, maybe a different type of, of, of just vulnerability that it, you take notice of. And you say, hey, will, will you teach me how to do that? Will you teach me how to pray? So that's what they're saying. And so after one of these prayer sessions, they asked Jesus, hey, will you teach us how to pray? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Is he recites the Lord's prayer. He recites this, then pray like this, right? Now, there's, there's, there's a little bit of an error that can happen when you look at the Lord's Prayer. For some people, they look at this as like some kind of holy transcript, right? That this is how you are to pray word by word and nothing else. 
right? This is the Lord's prayer. It's this, this secret prayer of God that you're supposed to just pray these words. Now, if you look at even just the preceding verses, you know that that's not true. Jesus actually railed against just lifting up empty words and phrases. But what I do think that the Lord's prayer gives us is these guiding principles for how a church ought to pray. What are markers of our prayer life? When we sit before God, we sit before the presence of God, before the face of God, as a church, what are we praying about? What are markers of our church? That's why we need to look at this. Because in my observation as a pastor, right, after just being, you know, with, with you guys and being a part of other, other spots, nobody I've ever met is adamantly against prayer as a Christian. Nobody would say, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe in prayer. But yet, they don't pray. Why? Why is that? Well, oftentimes it's because they don't even know how. Or they don't even know where to begin with. Or they get so caught up in saying, I don't even know what to say that I'm not going to say anything at all. But I think what this Lord's Prayer teaches us is, hey, you have a God. You have a Father in heaven which you can come to and you can remind yourself about that He is at work. And so the Lord's Prayer is going to guide us as a church, right? Because, and I'll talk a little bit about private prayers, but I'm talking more corporately. What do we pray for as a church? When we're coming together, when we're praying before service, we're praying after service with individuals, what do we as a church, what are we trying to get at? What are we actually dependent on God for? That's what should mark our prayer life. So let's look at, let's just kind of walk through this a little bit at a time. Now, Obviously, I'm not going to be able to walk through this in great detail, but I think we're going to do a quick flyover. What are the main characteristics of a praying church? Look at verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Let's stop there. Because the beginning of a prayer is incredibly important. Because how you start, like like much of life, how you start is sometimes indicative of where you're going, right? So he says, our father, our father, not my father, even though that was true of Jesus, not your father or somebody's father, but Jesus intentionally used that pronoun, our, that collective pronoun to communicate that when the disciples pray, they should be praying together. They should be praying together. So our father, you'll even notice throughout the rest of the Lord's prayer, there's not a a single time where there's a singular pronoun used by Jesus. Why? Because prayer is meant to be done with others. Hear me on this. Your Christian life, it is absolutely personal. Absolutely personal. Your walk with Christ is absolutely personal, but it is not private. There are times for quiet times with Jesus where you're praying and you're getting before the face of God. Absolutely but Jesus here seems to be instructing that when you're praying, you should be praying together. So our Father, our Father, and our Father, our Father means we have a Father in heaven. It's, it's not meant to be super complicated, but it's also meant to indicate to all of us that we have somebody in heaven who cares and loves us. That's why God uses that language of father. It's not a distant person, not a distant boss, not a distant judge, but a father. 
a father, a good father, a perfect father, but also a father in heaven meant to, to indicate to us that he's separate from us, right? That he's separate from us, that he is on his throne, that he is in, he is in heaven. We are down here. It means he knows everything that's going on. He knows everything that's going on. He's a good, good father. He's a good, good father. So how do we approach this father? How do you approach him? How do you approach a good father? You do so with vulnerability, with honesty, knowing that he already probably knows everything that's going on in your life as it is. And so you can surrender yourself to him in prayer. Now here's an important uh, clarity, point of clarification I need to make on this. It means that when you understand that you're, you have a God who's also a father in heaven, meaning that he has supreme rule and authority, that when you pray, you are actually submitting to his authority. Submitting to his authority because he's the father, you're not. Right? He's in charge, you're not. So when you come to him for prayer, you are recognizing that he is all-powerful and that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Maybe I'll put it this way. It means that when you pray that you're not competing with God's sovereignty, but you're submitting to it. And frankly, I think we fail at this sometimes. You know, just our, our prayer language, sometimes we, we indicate that maybe we don't quite understand this because when we pray, we're trying to fill in God what's happening in our world, right? Like, like, we, like we don't know that, we, or somehow we believe that he doesn't know everything that's going on in our life. We say, hey, so we imagine this, you're praying, right? You're saying, hey, God, I, I don't know if you know this, but this is what's going on in my life. I'm struggling with this. Or you start giving out all these details, you think that if you inform God enough, then maybe based off his information that you've given him, then he'll be able to act. That's not true, church. Right? You see this with the Lord be with prayers, right? Where, you know, you're saying, hey, God, I don't know if you know this, but I'm struggling to believe this, or I'm struggling in this area of my life, or, hey, I didn't know if you knew about Aunt Sally this week, but... You know, she got this diagnosis, Lord, be with this person. Now, is there anything wrong with praying for Aunt Sally? No, not at all. But I want to direct our attention. How does Jesus tell us to begin our prayer time? By acknowledging who he is. By acknowledging that we are driven by who he is. Our Father in heaven. And so maybe, for maybe for us as a church... We should focus in on, instead of just jumping into maybe some of the needs that are in our life, and those are important. Jesus will actually get to those. But you start with a God-centered mentality in your prayer life. You're acknowledging who you're talking to. And let that begin to change the way that you pray. Because here, here's the truth, church, is that prayer is meant to not change God's mind, but it's meant to change you. That when you pray that you're coming under his sovereignty, his goodness, his fatherliness, who's a perfect father. And you're saying, I want to recognize you, you. But what does he say next? Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now to hallow, that's a verb, to hallow something is to set something apart or to make something holy. So Jesus is saying, 
We need to be praying that God's name is to be hallowed, to be set apart, to be made holy. Why? For his name to be glorified, for his works to be known, for his character to be known. So for us as a church, how often are we praying then for God's name to be hallowed? Are we praying for God's name to be known in this valley? Are we praying for God's name to be set apart in this valley? Because the truth be told, the Bible teaches that one day every knee will bow to the name of Jesus Christ. That name will be set apart on judgment day. But it doesn't have to wait till then. What about right now? What about right now praying that every single person in this valley will not just know the name of Jesus intellectually or historically, but know it as hallowed, know it as set apart, know it as holy, because it's the only name where comfort and ultimate salvation can come from. So we're praying for that. We're praying for that. We're praying that God's name would be hallowed. I've been so convicted of that church i've been so convicted of how often am i just praying for god's name to be spoken with reverence for his name to be hallowed in this valley to be set apart i desperately want that and jesus is telling me pray for that pray for that even though god's name is set apart he is holy like we don't make him holy but jesus is instructing us to pray that his name would be set apart but look at verse 10 Where does Jesus go with this? Why? Why would we continue to do that? He says in verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So whose kingdom then are we praying for? Right? If we're we're recognizing God as Father, if we're recognizing that His name is to be hallowed, then the natural flow of our prayers then should be, whose kingdom are we praying for? Whose kingdom are we praying for? Is it our kingdom and our issues and our life, or are we directing what we want to see God do in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? Now, this does not mean, I want to be clear on this, this does not mean that we don't pray for things going on in our lives. We do. We do. We do pray for that Aunt Sally. But I want to encourage us that as a church, The markers of us should be praying for God's kingdom to come, his kingdom to be known. And, and, you know, we we pray for for those needs, absolutely, but we do not neglect the work that God is doing. Because ultimately, is, is the ultimate goal for Aunt Sally just to be physically healed? No, it's not. It's, it's for God's name to be hallowed, for his gospel to be proclaimed, for his salvation to be known and understand by the masses, for every single person that would turn and trust in him. So we pray for those things. You know, if you were to, and I haven't had a chance to do this, there's actually some really good books out there called like the, the Prayers of the Apostle Paul and, and other titles. But if you were just to do a quick survey of the New Testament, you would be very hard-pressed to find the Apostle Paul or Peter or anybody else praying specifically for their felt need. Now, it does happen, but ultimately what they're trying to do, even by expressing those needs, is saying, hey, I want to be healed so I can do what? Go preach the gospel. Or, hey, I need finances for what? So we can plant more churches. 
And so I think if we just look at the basic survey of the New Testament, we see what are they praying for? Is they're praying for the mission to go forward. They're praying for God's name to be hallowed. They're looking for ways to jump into the game. And they believe that their prayers are going to play an important role in that. So for us as a church, then what are we we calling to do? What are we asking God to do on a day-by-day basis? That is what we're praying for right now. And even though we tend to get numb to this, we tend to get into ruts. And I know this about myself, that we tend to get into ruts, even with our prayer life, where we seem to only be praying for things that we need. Or we treat prayer like it's some kind of, you know, pharmaceutical counter where you just say, this is my problem, Lord. Can you give me the right prescription? Can you answer this? Can you fix this ailment in my life and I'll be on my way? We cannot approach God in prayer like we approach the pharmacy where you only go there when something's wrong. You go there because you want to know the God who's in control of everything. And like a good father, you don't just talk to him when things are going bad. You do that, but you also talk to him when things are going good. And you share and you know him because he knows you. Let me show you this from, from John 15. John 15. This is Jesus uh, speaking to the disciples. And this is what he says. He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, it is that, bears much fruit. Now listen to this last part. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. So we don't just go to God when we believe that there's something wrong, but we go to God for everything, right? I didn't know this for much of my life, to be quite honest, that there was, a, there was a much of my life, and I still struggle with this, where I feel like, hey, if I just do the right things, if I'm just getting to the right rhythms, then I will be on a good path, right? I'll be moving in the right direction. And in, in my prayer life often resembles that. That I, when things are going really, really well, guess what's usually the first thing that gets less and less in my life? My prayers. My prayers. But what Jesus is saying here to his disciples, he's saying, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. How often do we approach our life like that? Are we wholly independent on God to move in every moment of our life? Because if, you, if we truly are, church, if we truly are, If we truly believe what this text just says, what would we exponentially start doing? Praying like crazy for everything. Knowing that we can do what without him? Nothing. Nothing. So all of our lives are dependent on God. Every ounce of provision comes for him. And our prayers must reflect this. Church, I implore you, do not get into the rut. Fight against getting into the rut of believing that if you just get into the right routine or right rhythm, then things will be fine and you can leave God out. We would never say that out loud, but we reflect that with our very prayer life. So we go to God because we need him and we act like it over and over again. But Jesus goes on. Look at, look at starting in verse 11. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. 
right? That's that same aspect of provision that we need God for everything. Now in context, right, the disciples had a very real need for physical bread, right? They, they needed, sometimes they did not know where their next meal was coming from. So there was a, a sincerity that they were actually praying for physical bread. But if you look at how God has used bread specifically, so the totality of Scripture, it's usually indicating a spiritual need too. Not just a physical need, but a spiritual need. That you need heavenly bread. You need heavenly food, heavenly manna. And God is saying, pray for that. Pray that I would show up. Pray that I would give that to you. Pray in desperation that you need me. And he will. And he will. He will absolutely will. And then what does it lead to? Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Because when we are so desperate for God to move, what will happen? It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. See, when you acknowledge God in all the ways that we just talked about, you are going to be reminded about the gospel. That when you pray for, you know, for that, that daily provision in your life, that you are going to be reminded of how God has provided for you, not just in a daily way, but in a salvific way. That he has saved you, that he has died for you. And that you can actually come to him because he has forgiven your debts. Church, do you realize that God, Jesus, cannot be in the presence of sin? A part of him being holy is being set apart and holiness cannot be in the presence of sin. So how in the world can we even come to God in prayer? Is if our sins have been paid for. If our sins have been atoned for. You see, church, every time we pray, every time we communicate with a holy and just and right God, we are reminding ourselves that the only way we can do that is because of the work of Jesus Christ. Right? And so I, I, I want every single one of us, maybe for the first time, but certainly to be reminded again and again that we as a people are completely dependent on God for all things and thankful for Jesus, for his atonement on the cross, for him bearing the penalty for our sin. That is the God in which we worship. I don't, you guys have heard me say this. Whoa. You guys have heard me say this. But I don't want to move on from this. I don't want to move on from the gospel. I don't want my prayers to move on from the gospel. Like when I pray that somehow Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and atoning for those and rising from the dead, confirming that he paid the penalty for my sins, that that's just an afterthought. Or that was just a long time ago. That doesn't affect my day-to-day life. No, I want my prayers to be reminded over and over again and even spoken about and thanking God for forgiving my debts. Because what does gospel doctrine then lead to? Gospel culture. It's the way that we even treat people. We forgive those who have, have debt against us because of what Jesus has done. The only way you can ever forgive somebody is if you are a forgiven person. It's the only way you'll ever understand forgiveness if you understand forgiveness in your life. So we go to God and we confess our sins. We be reminded of that. And we do so to not appease God. Where did the appeasement of God come from? It came on the cross. But we do confess our sins and remind ourselves of the gospel to what? Please God. You guys notice the difference there between appease and please? Appease is talking about the cross. Please just means that daily joyful correspondent with the God who saved you. That's gospel culture. And then lastly, look at verse 13. 
It said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But deliver us from evil. So when we pray, we're, we're getting in front of God. We're reminding ourselves of who he is. We're reminding ourselves about his kingdom. We're also reminding ourselves that we have a real enemy. Jesus says, don't forget that you have a real enemy. But deliver us from evil. Because who's going to deliver you? Who's the one that's all powerful? He is. In 1 Peter, Peter refers to Satan like a lion seeking someone to devour. And so what Jesus is saying in this prayer is when you pray, remind yourself that you have an enemy that wants to even take you away from corresponding with God. Remember in Genesis, Genesis 1, Adam and Eve? What was the first thing that Satan tried to tell Adam and Eve to do? It's to not talk about to God about what they're thinking and feeling, right? To go do it on their own, you know, to eat of the fruit on their own. No, no, you don't need to talk to God about this. Just go do it on your own. And we do the same thing, right? So the great tempter, the first thing he does is say, don't talk to God about this. Do it on your own. You, you can handle this. I promise you, you can handle this. And how much trouble has that gotten us into? A lot, a lot. It's even true about prayer, isn't it? Even just the act of praying is often the, the time of greatest temptation or the greatest distraction. I don't know about you guys, but if you're watching a show on Netflix or, or Hulu or wherever you guys watch shows, when you are watching a show, or do you get distracted and start thinking about other things that you have to go do? No, you don't. But what happens when you start praying? Then you start thinking about how dirty the garage is, right? Just me? No, but when, when you are praying, all of a sudden, everything which you think that you ought to be doing besides that act starts flooding into your mind. That's not a coincidence. That's not by accident. It means we have a real enemy that does not want us to pray, to pray. Because why is that? Why in the world would Satan want us to not pray? Because prayer is, in a sense, tapping into the power of God. Now, hear me on this. We do not believe in the power of prayer for the sake of prayer. We believe in the power of prayer because who we're talking to. We believe in the power of prayer because of the God who's on the other line of our prayers. Let me show you one of the first promises of Jesus to the church. Matthew 16. We looked at this in the Gospel of Mark, but let me show you this from Matthew. This is after Peter has confessed Jesus as the Messiah. This is what Jesus says to Peter and all the disciples. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So you know what you do when you start praying that God would deliver you from evil, deliver you from temptation? You are reminding yourself of the very promise that God has made to the church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that even though we have a real enemy, he does not win in the end. And so we can persevere. We can push on. We can pray the most crazy prayers that, God, will you actually save my uncle? Will you actually save my kids? Will you actually save my spouse? And why can you pray that? Because the gates of hell shall not prevail. And God is a good God who saves who he will please to save. And we can trust him in that. And so you're coming under his lordship. And you're coming under his sovereignty. You're coming into all of the, 
the delight that comes with corresponding to God. So church, I want to be a church that prays, that, that says, Lord, move. Lord, your will be done. Lord, your kingdom come. God, remind myself of my salvation. Remind myself of my daily bread and see what happens. And see what happens. Because if you look throughout all of church history, the great revivals where you know, there's just an unprecedented amount of people being saved were always steeped in prayer. We see this in, in the great awakenings you know, in America, in Europe, even in Spurgeon's time, right? What happened when, when Spurgeon was preaching? Charles Spurgeon, right, in, in the 19th century. What, what was happening there? Right? He had one of the biggest churches in the world at this point. Thousands of people coming to the Metropolitan uh, Church there in London. And there's even a story about one time there's these college students who, are, who want to go visit and see Spurgeon preach. And so they get there early because they know that usually his services are packed out. It's standing room only most of the time. So they get there a few hours early. And they're standing outside the church doors. And all of a sudden, from one of the side doors opens and a man pops out and says, hey, are you, are you guys waiting to come to church? Like, he's like, yeah, well, you know, we're, just, we're just waiting. We want to see Charles Spurgeon preach. He's like, oh, that's awesome. Well, hey, there's still a little bit of time before that. Do you guys want a tour of the boiler room? And they're like, uh, you know, and this was mid-July when they went there. So it was hot. And, but they didn't want to seem rude to this person that was offering them a, a tour of the boiler room. So they said, okay. And so they, they go with this man down these steps into the basement where, they, where the boiler room is present. And the man slowly opens the door to the boiler room. And what do they find? Hundreds and hundreds of people praying for the church service that's going to be in a couple of hours. And they go, what, what is going on? And he goes, this is the boiler room. This is where all of the power of this church comes from. It comes from the prayers of the people. And then that man introduces himself. My name is Charles Spurgeon. This is the power. It's not me. It's God moving in a miraculous way. It is even recorded church that on Monday nights, Monday night, Spurgeon would have prayer meetings at his church. And upwards of 3,000 people would come every single Monday to do what? To pray. Pr- to pray for God to move. To pray the Lord's Prayer. To pray for all these things. Church, God can do whatever He wants to do, but He loves to answer the prayers of His people. Even recently. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Maybe it's just you know, me being in the pastoral world, but there's a, um, a church over in Tennessee called Long Hollow Baptist Church. And, and they've been praying for, and they're a bigger church. They've been praying for a long time for God just to give them a unique outpouring of grace and mercy on their community in which they pastor. And so they've been meeting up and they've been praying. And since January, church, since January, they have baptized over a thousand people in that church. Just a unique outpouring of God's mercy and God's spirit. And certainly they've been praying like crazy for a long time. It's not like a, you do A and God does, does B. It, all of prayer is recognizing that we are dependent on God for everything. But he delights to hear the prayers of his people. And so if you want to see your community saved, if you want to see your community changed, if you want to see your family members moved by the gospel, where do we have to start? Prayer. 
Where do we have to end? Prayer. We work hard in between. We do our best, right? We commit to the Bible. We commit to preaching. We commit to church membership. We commit to all those things. But we do every single one of them soaked in prayer, marinated in prayer. That's what we want to be about as a church. And that's a gift from us or for us. The gift of prayer. The gift of being able to come before a holy God and say, God, you're my father. You have saved me. Will you move? Will you move? Let's do that. Are you guys with me on that? All right. All right, let's go ahead and end our time in prayer. Well, Father, I thank you that when we, when we do pray, we're not praying to the walls, we're not praying to the ceiling, we're not just talking out loud, but we are talking to the King of Kings. We're talking to the Lords of Lords. We are speaking to the Savior of our souls in you, God. And so for us as a church, we want to be a praying church. But God, we need help in that. Our bent, our default mode, Lord, and I know this is of me, is my default mode is to try to get it done on my own. To do the right things, and the right things will happen in result. But God, I, I know and I believe, because your word is clear on this, that all things come from you. And so, Lord, we want to pray things like the Lord's Prayer. We want to pray things like what you've given us to pray for. And so God, help every single one of us in this room commit to praying and sitting under your lordship and under your sovereignty and under your beauty because there's no other place to go. There's no other person that contains the power and the words of life like you. So may we always be humbly in submission to you for all things, for your glory and our joy. In your name we pray, amen.